peace be among you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I did a little experiment in my Pauline Epistles classes last quarter. For the exegetical study, I gave the students the option of two different texts to work on. One was a text that had a whole bunch of gospel and a tiny little bit of law, and the other was a text that had a whole bunch of law and virtually no gospel. And I was just kind of curious to see which students would pick which texts to preach on or to do their exegetical study on. So out of 50 papers, which took me four days to grade, by the way, out of 50 papers, how many do you think chose the law text? Any thoughts? 45? <laughs> Is that you, Grayson? Oh, man. Seven. Seven out of 50 papers chose the law text. And I, I kind of pondered why this would be. I mean, one answer for this might be that we just have great gospel-centered guys, and in a few years we'll have some great gospel-centered preachers. That'd be a good answer. The second answer might be that our students are afraid to preach the law, <laughs> which is probably true. The third answer is that the gospel text had seven verses and the law text had 12 verses, which actually is probably the right answer. The brave few students, though, who selected the law text had some interesting observations. In the last section of the exegetical paper, I have them do uh, a homiletical outline or a Bible study outline, and I ask them to describe the setting in which they will teach or preach the text and to be very precise in their descriptions. Uh, what's going on that will relate to this text and how you will teach or preach it? One student uh, described preaching this text in his fieldwork congregation, and I want to quote to you a few sentences of how he described what this congregation typically hears. Quote, This congregation is not used to hearing specific, pointed law in its proclamation, the hard type of law that Paul writes regarding sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6. The sermons generally revolve around God's attributes, the gospel, making inroads into the community, catchy, sometimes cliched sermon themes, and ministry action plans receiving most of the emphasis. The law is used mostly in brief generalization without specific application to the congregation and community. The congregation seeks to be a place and people of warmth. Now, personally, I'm all about warm and fuzzy, of course. And I will add a note, it wasn't St. Paul de Pere, uh, nor was it you, Tim, so you don't have to worry. But I guess that's why I remember these comments. They're so striking uh, and I think emblematic of a problem or a, a fear that we have in our preaching. I recall those comments, at least the gist of them, when I sat in worship this weekend and heard the readings from Ezekiel 33 and 1 Corinthians 10, and Luke 13. And being who I am, I pondered what ministry action plan that preacher would preach on from those texts this week. There are no warm fuzzies in the reading today. There is no gospel. 
at all. In fact, did you catch what those texts were saying? If you sin, you will die. Even worse, if you don't sin, you will die. Evil people will come after you and kill you. Random events will happen and kill you. And if you try to go to the epistle reading for a little gospel, you ain't going to find it there. It's even worse. God himself scattered the bodies of the Israelites in the wilderness. God killed the Israelites, the apostle says, and he could well do the same to you. Wow. Now what? In Luke 13, there's a question implicit from those unnamed people who approached Jesus. They brought news ripped out of the headlines. Did you hear Jesus? Pilate killed those pious people who were offering godly sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. The question they're asking, or the answer they want from Jesus, is why? Why did these terrible things happen to these good people who were doing what God had commanded them to do? If God cannot protect his people in his temple, where can God protect his people? Jesus doesn't offer any comfort. Not only do good things, uh, do bad things happen to good people who are doing God's will, but also innocent people standing around, minding their own business, going to work, talking to their friends, have buildings fall down on top of them. So random. So unnecessary. Why? We have our own headlines, but the same question. Evil people like suicide bombers will strike in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in New York City. Earthquakes shake buildings down in Haiti. We do our best to help out, and then a couple of weeks later it happens again in Chile. Why? Innocent people, gone. Could not God have prevented this? That question has been asked many, many times and answered in many, many ways in books, essays, sermons, personal letters of condolence, quiet words spoken in a hospital room. And these words have tried with varying degrees of success to make sense of that question. Why? Why has God allowed pain and suffering and death? These conversations are necessary and helpful and a sign of the love and concern that we share within the body of Christ. But there's also a danger in this. We put God under a microscope. We analyze his actions, his intentions. We sort out from our own observations, from our end of the microscope, 
and come up with our theories and hypotheses about what God is doing and why. As if we could fathom his working. As if God were the object of our study. But Jesus did not allow this. He refused to answer those who came to him with their question of why. He would not allow the Father to be placed under a microscope to be the object of study and contemplation. Instead, he turned the microscope around and put it on us. On you. People die. What about you? Pilate killed people. Are you ready for that to happen to you? Buildings fall down and crush and maim and destroy. Are you ready for that to happen to you? Because it will. And being examined by God under the microscope is not a comfortable thing. Every flaw, every weakness, it is not comfortable. You see, there comes a point when the answers we get to that question, why, when the deductions that we and others have made from our observations about what God seems to be doing, there comes a point when the answers no longer work. A point where we are confronted with the terrifying realization that it does not matter what we do, Evil powers, random events, and even God himself may cause very real and very painful suffering and death. There is no answer that can satisfy. There's a point where we realize that God need not and will not answer our questions. We are simply trapped. We are mere children of Adam. We were born into a creation that is broken and decaying and falling apart. We were born as creatures who are stained and corrupted and weakening day by day. We are helpless and we cannot get out of it. We will suffer. And we will die. But it is here, in our helplessness, that God gives his response. It is in our weakness that God comes. Not with words and solutions, but with a person. For it is our weakness and our corruption and our own death that he has come to destroy in the person of Jesus. Repent! In the face of death, that is Jesus' solution. Repent! This repentance is not some wild-eyed preacher standing on a corner yelling around, repent, and our job is to feel a little more sorry than we used to, to do a little better than we used to. God doesn't want a little more or a little better. God wants everything. 
What Jesus calls us to is the rejection of the old and the receiving of the new. In the face of death to turn to him who alone is life. To live under him in his kingdom. To find our hope in him. For he alone has conquered death. In Jesus' own body, he put death to death on a cross. And when he was raised by the Father, he destroyed once and for all death itself. By his own death, he conquered death. And he has brought life and the ending of this corruption to light. And it is the dawning, the beginnings of this light, that give us hope in the person of Jesus. A hope that is even sweeter than the smell that enters your noses when you walk out on a beautiful spring morning and breathe in that life, feel it, a little foretaste of what is to come. Even more real than that is the life that we have in Jesus Christ. For we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, even death itself, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious, perfect body. And now God is the one who throws out the taunts, <laughs> the mocking. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? You got nothing anymore. It is gone. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.